Our Father, we gather now and open the word to hear what you would have for us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. May you would enable us to focus and block out those intrusions that cause our minds to wander and to lose track of where we are and what we're about. Our Father, we have this unique privilege of gathering publicly, openly, without fear, to hear the word of God preached. May you enable us to make the most of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to the second chapter of James this morning, James chapter two. We sang this morning that he will hold me fast. Christ will not let me go. And that is a marvelous and wonderful truth that we, we need to be reminded of regularly and hang on to in the ups and downs of life. And the way that Christ hangs on to us, the, the primary way that he hangs on, that he holds us fast, is by his spirit and through his word. As we read the word of God, as we hear the word of God preached and taught, as we contemplate its truths, the spirit of God uses his word to, to inflame our hearts, to renew faith within us and to draw us to him. So it's a marvelous opportunity to, to gather and to hear the word of God preached. And so we need to maximize every opportunity we have. This morning's message from James chapter 2 is, is an end of the year kind of message. And at the end of the year, it's common for uh, various personalities to either write or speak about the events of the year just past. It's sort of 2018 in review, as it were. And they talk about the various things. And sometimes it's quite interesting because we forget, wow, that happened this past year. Yeah, it really did. And so with such short uh, attention spans, we need to be reminded of things. And, and that's helpful. And then oftentimes they'll look forward and they'll speak about, well, these are some of the things that perhaps may come our way in 2019. So I personally enjoy those kind of end-of-the-year reviews. Well, the message this morning is, is along those lines. This message from James chapter 2 is an end-of-the-year, uh, beginning-of-the-year kind of message praying that the Spirit of God will use it to invigorate within us our faith. Because it is our faith that has carried us through 2018. And no matter what happens in 2019, it will be our faith in Christ that will carry us through in 2019 as well. So, I begin this morning just by asking you a, a question. And the question is simply this, what is saving faith? What is saving faith? What does it look like? What does saving faith look like? And how do I know whether I have it? How do I know whether I have it? As a parent of children, small and into the teen years, one might ask themselves, how do I know whether my children have saving faith? 
What do I look for? Are there any kinds of biblical tests that one could look for to, to confirm or to give evidence of, of a reality of faith? You know, folks, we live in really unprecedented times. I was reading this past week, a short biography on William Tyndale. And William Tyndale is the man responsible for bringing, essentially bringing to us the Holy Scriptures in the English language. And he paid a terrible price for it, living on the run for a dozen years, constantly hounded until he was finally betrayed, captured, strangled, burned, and exploded his dead body. Such was the, the anger and the, and the vicious attitude of the institutional church of his day for the simple crime of bringing the scriptures to the English people in their own language. And so here we are, you and I, living in an unprecedented time. The unprecedented time is a reality that we have open and easy access to the word of God in the English language. Most of us have multiple Bibles in multiple translations, English translations available to us. We are, we are wealthy beyond measure compared to, to those that have gone before us through the centuries. And yet here we are. Here we are with the Bible widely available and yet the gospel contained in that Bible largely hidden. Largely hidden. Biblical ignorance is, is on the rise. It, it, it's stunning how little people really know about the Bible and, and about the gospel. And, and when one listens to the, to the Christian airwaves, the Christian radio stations, and, and peruses the Internet, it's appalling what one hears out there. The, the prevailing notion is what I call Christianity light. And, and, it's, and it's all over the place. You know, we live here in America in an economy that is 70% consumption driven. Just let that sink in. 70% of the economic growth of America is based on consuming things. And what that means is, is that we have as a people developed a consumer mentality. It's encouraged at, at, at every turn. The customer is king, right? He has been crowned king. And what that means is when the customer is king, what it, what it means often to the church is there, there is this pressure to, to soften the gospel, this pressure to, to remove the difficulties, the stumbling blocks, the obstacles of the Christian faith and, and to downplay the radical commitment of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer do we hear people say that you must deny yourself and take up your cross. Instead, the largest, quote, evangelical, close quote, church in America tells people they can have their best life now. We are in a deplorable state. A deplorable state. And the result, the result of this kind of easy believism that is stacked up decade after decade after decade is a weak and shallow church, a very weak 
in a very shallow church filled with people whose lifestyle is indistinguishable from the culture at large. The driving force, I believe, behind this easy believism is what I believe is a heresy, and it's the heresy of decisional regeneration. Decisional regeneration. This is the notion that a verbal profession of faith in Jesus results in causing a person to be born again. The church has been plagued for centuries, yea, millennia, by the heresy of baptismal regeneration. That's the idea that, that the water of baptism washes away or original sin and confers grace upon the individual, whether they have faith or not. And the result of this is that the church has been filled historically with many, many unconverted people. They've come into the church via baptism, usually infant baptism, and they point to this ritual of baptism as the basis of their eternal confidence that they will someday join the Lord in glory. Well, decisional regeneration substitutes a different ritual by which a person is given assurance of his salvation because he has answered yes to a series of questions. Questions that regard Jesus and then has prayed a prescribed prayer. And on the basis of answering yes to these questions and praying this prescribed prayer, like unto baptismal regeneration, that is the basis of assurance. The basis of insurance is, is located in this act, in what this person has done. The problem is, is in both baptismal regeneration and decisional regeneration, the power of salvation is falsely thought to reside in the hands of man and not God. And that is exceedingly dangerous. The jargon of decisional regeneration is frequently something like this. I have accepted Christ as my Savior. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. Or I've asked Jesus into my heart. Or sometimes I accepted Christ as my Savior and then later I began following him. Beloved, the question is not whether we have accepted Jesus. The question is, has Jesus accepted us? Has Jesus accepted us? Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Not have you accepted Christ. Has Christ accepted you? James here in the second chapter of his letter, and this is the earliest epistle here in the New Testament, he is addressing a problem. There was a danger to the church here in the early 
part of that first century. But what he has to say here has, has much to say to us this morning with regard to saving faith. What is it? What does it look like? How do I know that I have it? Now, as we begin here, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 26 here in the second chapter, as we begin, let me just say this, there is no contradiction. There is no contradiction between the teaching of James and Paul. Okay, let's just establish that reality. There is no contradiction between the teaching of James and Paul with regard to the topic of good works and salvation. They are not pitted one against the other. Paul, in Romans and Galatians, concerns himself with the means by which a sinner is made right before God. And Paul teaches there, in both Romans and Galatians, that there is nothing that a person can do to earn the favor of God. But they are simply declared justified based upon God's grace received through faith alone. That is the gospel of grace. Justification by grace alone through faith alone. One is declared righteous. It is a forensic declaration. It is a legal reality. James, in what we're going to look at together this morning, on the other hand, is looking at the person after they have professed faith in Christ. And he is strongly insisting here that good works are a necessary consequence of the saving grace of God. God's grace really and truly changes people. It is not a legal fiction. It is a legal declaration in forensic justification, but it is not a legal fiction. It does change people, really, truly, and completely. We might say it this way. Good works are not the root, but the fruit of a saving relationship with God through Christ. Good works are not the root, but the fruit of a saving relationship with God through Christ. Now, as James leads off this whole discussion here, he, he asks, beginning in verse 14, two rhetorical questions, and he expects a negative answer. They are, they are constructed in such a way that the, that the correct answer is in the negative. And the two questions are this. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works? That's the first rhetorical question. The second one is this, can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? The answer to both questions is in the negative. In other words, can a faith that produces no external change, no distinctly Christian deeds or lifestyle actually save? At the final judgment, will God accept that kind of faith? The answer is no. The answer is no. 
And so we ask again, the question we began with, what is saving faith? James gives us here, beginning in verse 15, running through the end of this chapter, four case studies. This is our outline. It's pretty simple. Four case studies in saving faith. Four case studies in saving faith so that we might know it when we see it. Okay? He presents it very simply. He just gives four simple, short case studies. This is what saving faith looks like from four different aspects. Okay? So here we go. Case study number one. The needy brother or sister, verses 15 through 17. Case study number one, the needy brother or sister. The first case study that, that James gives us here that, so that we might know whether we have saving faith or not is the case of the poor and needy believer. The scenario that James is going to paint for us here is, is of a believer who is poor even by ancient standards. Okay, not by our wealthy standards, but by even ancient standards, this person is poor. He or she is lacking the, the necessary clothing to even keep warm and the food to meet their daily need of sustenance. And when confronted with this pressing need, the person whose faith lacks saving power responds with kind words, warm wishes, but makes no attempt to alleviate the person's suffering. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in daily need of food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Answer, none. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. This, this expression, go in peace, be, be warmed, or be, or be filled, is, carries the idea of I wish you well as you go and take care of your problem. Or, or perhaps something like, um, may God feed you. May, may, may God clothe you. Unspoken, I'm not going to. I have no intention of it. But may God take care of you. Go, go in peace. May, 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 may the Lord care for your need. It, it sounds so religious, so pious, so, so godly. But it's cruel. It's useless. And it's dead as regards faith. That kind of faith, James says, is dead. It's dead. 
Now, this case study is not about feeding the poor generally. This is not some statement about social welfare and with regard to how society is supposed to care for the poor among them. And, and it's a huge issue, and there, the Bible does have much to say about that. But this is more specific than that. This is about feeding a, a specific class of poor, about clothing a specific class of poor. That is, the believers among you. The believers among you. Those who belong to the same family that you and I belong to. The, the family of God. We could, we could boil it down to it that it concerns in its first and foremost this fellowship right here. Right here. How we respond to one another in our needs speaks a lot about how we understand what the gospel really is and what faith in Christ produces in us. John says over in 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18, speaking about basically the same idea, he says, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Talk is cheap. And religious talk is particularly cheap. James says, deeds, deeds. Let me ask, when we see a brother or sister here, part of the fellowship in this church who is sick, how do we respond to them? How do you respond to them? I hope you feel better. Is that our response? I, I oh, you, you've been sick all week. Oh, I, I hope you feel better. May, may God heal you. And then we never give him a second thought. I hope you feel better. And by the way, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Or do we take time to pray for them? I mean, right there and beyond that. Do we bring them a meal? We find out they're sick, do we bring them a meal? Or some other tangible expression of care and concern. Something to alleviate their suffering. I mean, when you think about that, this, is, this is a long way off from, from what James is talking about here. He's talking about here people that are starving. Are we even in a position to help those among us who are just basically suffering? 
Lesson number one. Lesson number one from case study number one. Saving faith is compassionate. Okay, mark it down. What is saving faith? Saving faith is compassionate. If we know Christ savingly, truly, if he has changed us, then we will grow in compassion, all of us. Some are more compassionate than others, to be sure. But all followers of Christ must be compassionate at some level and be growing in that compassion and and want to grow in that compassion because to grow in compassion is to grow in the likeness of Christ. He looked out on on the multitudes, on the masses that were like sheep without a shepherd, and the Scripture said he had compassion on them. Saving faith is compassionate. Second, secondly, case study number two. Case study number two, demons. Demons, verses 18 through 20. Case study number two, demons. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? James anticipates an objection here through his earlier statements, his earlier case. This objection that, that, that wants to differentiate between faith and works. As if, uh, well, God grants faith to one person and, and works to another. See, God gave me faith, but he gave you works. And, you know, he didn't give you faith, he didn't give me works. But, but James slams the door on that kind of a challenge, on his imaginary opponent here. He does so by showing them that that faith without, or, or better said, verse 18, apart from works, doesn't exist. I mean, how can you show your faith apart from works, right? Faith is... Invisible. It's invisible. How can it be shown? It can't. But good works, which are visible, makes the invisible faith visible. It it demonstrates that, that the faith is real. James is dealing here with the idea that that saving faith is purely intellectual. And and he's basically saying there's no matter how orthodox that faith might be, that belief might be, it's it's actually demonic. Now, that's a strong statement. That's a strong statement here in verse 19. You do well, right? You believe that God is one, you do well. 
the demons also believe and shudder. Now this expression that God is one is a, is a um, it comes from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, right? It's, a, it's sort of the Old Testament confession of orthodoxy boiled down, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema comes from the, the Hebrew word for hear, okay? And so by, by picking that out here, he's, he's gathering up all of orthodoxy. He's basically saying is, so you are orthodox, verse 19, in your faith, in your belief, you do well. The demons are also orthodox and shudder and shudder. What? Demons are orthodox? Yeah, actually, demons are very orthodox. They are very orthodox. They're very orthodox in the sense that they, that they know the true God. And they know Jesus, his son. They also know that, that Jesus one day will banish them to the lake of fire. In other words, they, they know the outcome of the story. You can see it, in, for example, in Matthew chapter 8. Just look at a couple. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. This is Jesus casting out the demons, right, from the, the two men that are demon-possessed there in the country of the Gadarenes. Verse 29, Matthew 8. They, that is the demons, cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Whoa, that's a pretty orthodox statement. There were a ton of people walking around Israel at that time who couldn't make that statement. They didn't know who Jesus was. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know the end, <laughs> that they will be tormented. Matthew 25, 41, right? They will be consigned to the lake of fire, prepared for the, for the devil and his angels. They acknowledge who Jesus is. And they acknowledge that Jesus wins in the end. But they remain unrepentant. Because such is the nature of unbelief. Such is the nature of unbelief. Now one cannot believe absent orthodoxy. But an intellectual commitment to orthodoxy is not saving faith. It is not saving faith. The problem here, and I'm back in James 2, the problem here is that their belief in God, his sovereignty, Christ, his son, doesn't result in a love for Christ, but rather in a terror of Christ that, that figuratively makes the hair on the back of their necks stand up, right? Verse 19, they shudder. It's figurative language. 
I don't, I don't think demons actually shudder in the sense that you and I think of it. Again, the Apostle John says in 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. See, the reason the demons fear Christ is because they do not love Christ. They do not love him. They intellectually know who he is, what he has come to do, but they do not love him. They fear him. So the question here at the end of the year, right, 2018, 2019, the question to ask ourselves is, do we see a love of God in our hearts? As we look at our lives this past year, as we think about the year we're going into, do we see a love of God in our hearts? Do we long to know him? Do we long to know him? Do we we desire to please him? Is that what moves us? Well, how will I know that? Well, one way, one clue you could look for is his word. What is your relationship with the word of God? Because you cannot have a relationship with God outside of his word. In other words, do you read your Bibles? Do I read my Bible? Do I want to read my Bible? Do I desire to read my Bible? Is it a chore? Is it something that I do because I feel guilty if I don't? Or because mom and dad make me, you know, no Bible, no breakfasts kind of thing. Yeah, that was the rules in our house. No Bible and no breakfast. They all read their Bible because they were all hungry. I'm not necessarily telling you that's the best way to do it. I'm just telling you that's the way we did it. No Bible, no breakfast. They all read their Bibles in the morning, by the way. That habit has been sunk deep. But do you read, do you want to read the scriptures? Do you want to? Do do you hunger for the fellowship of God's people? Do you you look forward to being with, with God's people? Do you look forward to your time together in your small group? Do you look forward to to the time in, in corporate worship? Is it a highlight for you? You want to be here. You don't want to miss. Again, if we're cold to the people of God, it's because we're cold to God. Or is your faith a series of theological truths that you assent to, but which ultimately are making little or no difference in how you live your life day to day? Doesn't really affect your day to day decisions. You would agree to the, to the doctrinal statement. Come on, I believe all that stuff. Yep, 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 yep. 
but it doesn't change anything. The lesson from case study number two, beloved, is that saving faith is God-loving. Is God-loving. Saving faith is compassionate, and saving faith is God-loving faith. It produces a love of God. Case study number three. Abraham. Abraham. Verses 21 to 24. This is the third case study, and it, it introduces the account of the patriarch Abraham, right? And specifically here in 21 to 24, James refers to that shocking command that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 2 that Abraham offer as a sacrifice his one and only son Isaac as the capstone of a life of faith. If you think about that account as you read it, it is shocking what God asks Abraham to do. And perhaps even more shocking than that is Abraham's response. He willingly offers Isaac And we find out in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 19 that the reason he was able to willingly offer his only begotten son Isaac is because he believed God would raise him from the dead. Not because he believed that God would at the last minute insta- you know, give a substitute or change his mind or you know, withdraw the command or something like that. He went up Mount Moriah fully expecting to slay his own son. But he believed. To the depth of his soul, he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James says that Abraham was justified by his works. Verse 21, right? Was not Abraham our father justified by his works? This has led many people to see a a contradiction between Paul and James that they cannot resolve. But it is resolvable, and it's resolvable, I think, by taking a moment to look at the word justify. The word has two primary meanings in the Scriptures. 
The one that we normally think of when we talk about justification or being justified is the idea to be put into a right relationship, normally with God, or to acquit or to, or to declare and treat as righteous. And that's the way Paul uses it in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. But there's another way that, that justify is used in the New Testament. And there it means to, to show or to prove to be right or to vindicate. To vindicate. For example, in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, I don't need to show you the others, they're very familiar to you, but Luke 10 and verse 29. See, account of the, of the lawyer who stands up and says, teacher, what shall I do to, etern to inherit eternal life? Right? And Jesus says, you know what's written in the law. How does it read to you? And he says, well, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and you know, your neighbor as yourself and so forth. And, and Jesus says, um, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Then verse 29, but wishing to justify, substitute, vindicate, but wishing to vindicate himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Or chapter 16 and verse 15. Pick it up in verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. You are those who Seek to vindicate yourself, to seek to show that you are right. Okay? So, back to James. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father vindicated by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Hmm. As a result of the works, faith was completed or perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. I mean, think about Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11 does, puts him forward as a model of a life of faith. By faith, we're told that Abraham left his homeland for regions unknown. By faith, he wandered about in the promised land for decades. By faith, he waited 25 years for God to give him a son. And then once he had received that son in complete obedience to God, he was willing to sacrifice that son because God had commanded it. James looks at Abraham's life and he, and he makes the observation that it was all along that it was Abraham's faith that was working with, working with, the idea is helping or aiding his works. Verse 22. 
you see that it was faith was working with his works. In other words, Abraham's faith was, was helping or aiding or enabling the kind of, of life that Abraham lived. I mean, it's hard to move. It's hard to move to a new place. It's really, really hard to move to a place where you don't know where you're going. And then to wander in that place for decades with no place to settle down in a tent, constantly on the move. To be told that, that through you, through your seed, the nations of the earth will be blessed, that you will have a child. And then to wait 25 years. 25 years. Until you were well past, you and your wife, well past childbearing. Go out and look up into the night sky, Abraham, Genesis 15. Look at the stars. Count them if you can. You will have offspring like the stars. 15.6, he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. By the way, the, the, the tense of the verb there in the Hebrew indicates that that belief didn't just spring into existence there. It, it, it points backwards in time. Abraham's saving faith was when he left Ur of the Chaldees. And his life was nothing but a repeated illustration of one challenge after another in which his works manifested that faith. Every trial, every obstacle, every delay, every insurmountable barrier strengthened his faith. All right? His faith was, was working with his works. It was aiding his works. It was enabling him to walk in obedience. And it brought him closer and closer and closer to the intended God, his intended goal, God's intended goal for him, which was for him to offer willingly his son Isaac. That was the capstone event for him. That was the, the final and public act that manifested the reality of a life of faith. The authenticity of the faith that had been his, that had been proclaimed in Genesis 15, 6, right? Abraham believed God, verse 23 here, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, was shown to the world in the most dramatic of ways. All right, back to verse 18. You, you say you have faith. Show me. Abraham had faith. How do you know? You watch his life, and, and then you, and you look at the capstone event of his life. Beloved, it was, it was the progress of Abraham's faith, I think, that, that won him the title, verse 23, friend of God. Friend of God. The point that James is making here 
is that the faith that God counts as righteousness, that is saving faith, must ultimately manifest itself in the kind of unquestioning obedience that Abraham demonstrated in Genesis 22. That's why he gives us this account. Well, God has not called on anyone before or since to offer their son. This is a very unique event. He will never call you to the kind of sacrifice that he called Abraham to. But Abraham was a man just like us. But God does call us to sacrifice. Right? Take up your cross and follow me. The question becomes is, what will I give up for the name of Christ? What will I give up? Are you willing to give up whatever he asks of you? What holds you back? If you think about your life, what's holding me back? The lesson from this third case study, beloved, is that saving faith is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. There's no two ways about it. He doesn't call us all to the same sacrifice, but he calls us all to sacrifice. Saving faith is sacrificial. Fourth. Fourth case study is Rahab. All right, James here, verses 25 and 26, he closes out his discussion with the case of Rahab. I think he does this because it would be easy to, to, you know, if you finished with Abraham here, to say, well, yeah, but Abraham, he was unique. I mean, he's like, nobody's like that guy, right? Father Abraham, you know, many sons, and many sons said, Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and how about you? And yeah, right? I mean, he was unique. There's no question about that. And, and it would be easy to think, well, he's an anomaly. He's an anomaly. And, and he's not the person we ought to pattern our life after. So, James reminds us one more time, fourth time here, what faith looked like by bringing to remembrance the, the account of the ancient prostitute, Rahab. In the same way, verse 25, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is the story of Joshua chapter 2, right? You know how it goes. It's, they've been wandering for 40 years. 
If all, all that whole generation dies in the wilderness, Moses is gone, Joshua is now the new leader, it's time to go into the promised land. And he does what any military person would do, he says, we better scout this place out a little bit, and he sends in two spies. The two spies, they, they enter into the walled city of Jericho, and they do what any uh, spy would do, is you go to a place where people talk. And one of the places in the ancient and modern world where people talk is the house of a harlot. And so they visit the house of the harlot, Rahab. While they're there, the most amazing thing happens. Because this woman makes the most incredible confession of faith. In Joshua chapter 2, she hides them, right? The, the, the king gets wind that there are a couple of strangers in town. I mean, he knows that there's two and a half million people camped on the other side of the Jordan River. Right? He doesn't take a genius to figure that out. So he hears there's a couple of strangers in town. He figures out they're probably spies, and he goes looking for them. Where do you go looking? You go to the house of the prostitute. And so he sends his men there, and, and she, right, says they, they took off while she hides them on her roof and covers them with the flax and so forth. Verse 8, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. And then look at this. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. And by the way, in verse 9, Lord Yahweh, covenant name. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. That was 40 years ago. I don't know how old she is. Probably not even 40 years old. But they've heard. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, Yahweh Elohim, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That is a profession of faith. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord. Since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will look kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She finds her way into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 as well. She asked the men to spare her life and the life of her family. She puts her life on the line by hiding them, right? And then directing them, the narrative tells us, to, to where they can hide out once they get out of the city, you know, before nightfall, and, and uh, go up into the mountains and hide for three days, and then it'll be safe to cross over. She helps them make their mission successful. James picks up on this. We're back in James 2. He picks up on, on her activity here as a demonstration of saving faith. She didn't merely say she believed that God would overthrow the city. She took action on that belief. 
See, she doesn't say, hey, you know what? We heard what happened to Egypt. Ooh, that was bad. And we heard about Og and, and, and Sidon and, their, and the king, right? And ooh, that was bad too. And, and, and we're afraid that you're coming in here. So please be nice to me. <laughs> but she puts it all on the line for them. She puts it all on the line. She risks her own life. And by her action, she proves the reality of saving faith. That's James' point. And that brings us to our fourth lesson. Saving faith is active. It is active. Saving faith prompts us to action even when it involves personal risk. So let me ask you, there's just something that you know you should do. Something that you know you should do or something that you are presently doing that you know you should stop because of your faith in God. Because you have trusted Christ. Something that you should do or something you should stop. And the question will be is, will you act on it this week? Will you act on it this week? Maybe it's, maybe it's telling somebody, confessing to someone, that person you're most afraid of, likely, secret sin. You've been carrying it through 2018. It weighs you down. It steals your joy. Pulls you back from the people of God. Makes the reading of the Bible cold and sporadic. Will you be free? Jesus says, come. Right? I mean, I died for this sin. Why would you continue to live in it? Or maybe there's some person you need to tell about Christ. Someone, family member, friend, schoolmate, somebody. You've tried a couple of times and, uh, you know, you, the words just get stuck in the back of your mouth. They don't seem to come out. Will you tell them? Will you tell them? Beloved, the transformation of the human heart is a divine surgery. It's a divine surgery. Salvation is of the Lord. And it's a divine surgery that is unattainable and ultimately unseeable by the human eye. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, then who can be saved? With man it is impossible, 
But with God, all things are possible. Will you call out to Christ? Will you call out to Christ to save you? What will it do if he does? It will make you compassionate. It will make you God-loving. It will make you sacrificial and it will make you active. In other words, it will turn your world right side up. Will you call out to Christ? Let's pray. Our Father Jesus said, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He invites us to come. O oh Lord, may you use that truth to regenerate spiritually dead hearts. In a crowd of this size, there is more than one here who is yet to know Christ. Father, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you would draw them to yourself even now. Cause them to be born again that they might believe. And Father, for my brothers and my sisters here at the end of 2018 and on the precipice of 2019, may your Holy Spirit just search our hearts, reveal those areas, Father, where coldness has crept in, Reinvigorate us. Draw us to Christ. Give us fresh passion for our Savior. That we might live for his glory this year. For his sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Beloved, I will see you next year. So go in peace. Go in peace.